0: Welcome everyone to the third ever episode of the Global Guessing Weekly podcast. My name is Clay Graubard and I'm joined with my co-host Andrew Andreidi. In the Global Guessing Weekly podcast, we talk about all things forecasting and geopolitics. In this week's episode, we are without a guest, and so in this week's episode, we will be talking about a new prediction website that we came across that is interesting for more than just its method as well as the recent geopolitical news that has happened in the United States and across the world. But in this episode, we want to start off uh, dealing with a controversy relatively close to home. This week on his blog, Astral Codex 10, Scott Alexander, formerly um, the blog writer of Slate Star Codex, wrote about a meticulous scoring controversy, which was pointed out recently and is something that we ourselves have noticed. And the root of this problem is that there is this website called Metaculus that we are a part of, that we make forecasts on, that attempts to use a community to forecast events happening in the future. And the way in which it incentivizes forecasts is by providing points to individuals to make more accurate forecasts. And the purpose of its scoring system is, in theory, to reward people that make the most accurate forecasts. But what has been pointed out in these blog posts that we've been reading, and that we've noticed ourselves, is that many a times you can make points by simply arbitraging the question. For instance, if the community thinks there's a 50% chance of an event happening, sometimes if you, say, guessed 52%, you would gain points whether you were right or you were wrong. And in other cases, it's been found that if you just always guess what the community thinks, you will always make points on the platform. And so what many people are pointing out is that this is not actual, actually incentivizing proper forecasting and that the system can be abused by people sort of spamming either the community prediction or these sort of arbitrage points where you go a little bit to the left or the right of the community median and get points no matter how events turn out. And that in turn, um, creates two downsides. Number one, a lot of people are just going to go on Metaculous and sort of take the easy way out on predictions. Something that Andrew and I have noticed is when making forecasts, they can take a lot of time. But finding a point on a scale where you can gain points one way or another is a pretty easy thing to do. And so if you get stumped on a prediction, instead of sort of muscling it out, you can just make that sort of guess. The other issue is that it really sort of distorts what the community prediction is. It creates a lot of weight around the median if people are incentivized just to sort of stick with how the community says. So for instance, let's say the community thinks right now there's a 50% chance an event happens and there's 20 people forecasting that. And now 100 more people come there and a certain majority don't want to go through and make a difficult forecast. If they just keep spamming that 50%, as time goes on, more and more people are going to think, wow, the community is really sure about this. Um, I don't feel confident enough to really stick out outside of the median. And so there's going to be sort of a more pull towards this artificially confident um, median forecast. And this is something that at least I think is a, is a pretty big issue. And Andrew, what do you think about this sort of metaculous problem? I know some people are thinking that um, it's sort of overblown in that, you know, people are going to make good forecasts because they want to make good forecasts and that, you know, points on metaculus don't matter. But some people are sort of raising the flag that they can make a better scoring system that um, incentivizes good forecasts rather than um, good pointmanship.
1: Well, listen, we've talked about how forecasting is a very new um, sort of presence in the mainstream uh, and you see a lot of platforms like the forecast app launched by Facebook, um, like Metaculus, like Rootclaim, which we'll get to. Um, we're all experimenting with different scoring structures and different incentive structures um, for the forecasters. And I think we haven't really reached a perfect system yet, which is why people are testing out so many different things because it is tricky. Um, and it's interesting if you want to go back to you know the Balkan Devlin podcast um, that we had our first one, and he talked a lot about incentive structures and uh, we asked him about some of these forecasting platforms, and he, he shared with us that he's also sort of skeptical about, um, you know, forecasters prioritizing, ranking up in the leaderboards and getting points versus being a good forecaster and, you know, giving accurate predictions. Um, I think something that we read on one of these blogs, uh, rostery.net, he says that, um, you know, the percentage that somebody gives on Metaculus for a forecast should not be Sort of the first order piece of data that you're using um, to then look at the community. It should be an input uh, into some sort of aggregators that you can more um, so you can sort of get rid of that of that arbitrage that you're talking about with points. Um, it seems like the Metaculous leadership is aware of these issues. I think they've responded to them, um, and it seems like they they support their original rationale for structuring the incentives on Metaculus as they have. Um, but I think, as you said, it is definitely, um, you know, a very relevant issue to us even. You know, we do Metaculous Mondays. We're predicting on Metaculous all the time. Um, and so as we're looking, you know, to put a percentage down, you know, sometimes it can be hard not to just at least notice the fact that, you know, we could we could make this forecast and, you know, hedge both ways and make it better for the global guessing uh, Metaculous account. So, um, yeah, I think there's a long way to go in terms of figuring out the best way to 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 structure these platforms um but i think this discussion in itself sort of from like a meta perspective is really beneficial healthy yeah it's Um, really
0: healthy because
1: exactly because i think it's the only way we get there
0: and there's so many different ways that um you can score predictions i came across a blog post from um, zivi um who scott alexander um had sort of used as the sort of catalyst for his blog post. Um, Zivi is a, is, a, is a blogger who um, at least recently is known for doing um, sort of weekly recaps on less wrong about COVID. Um, but back in April of 2020, he created a very long blog post about evaluating predictions in hindsight. And he presented six, no, sorry, eight different methods for evaluating forecasts, which to me was a lot more than I had ever seen. Um, before this, I had seen the Metaculus system, which is this mixture of you are betting against the Metaculous house, and you're also betting against the community. So how Metaculous points work on a very, very simplistic basis is when you make a prediction, you're actually making two bets. You're making one bet against the house, where on average you are going to lose points, the expected value is negative, and the other one is against the community where your expected value is positive. Um, And it sort of takes a combination of those two and gives you overall points. The other one that we know is from Philip Tetlock's Super Forecasting, which is this idea of a Brier score, which is really trying to say how accurate are you? If you say something is going to happen, if, if if I say there's a 50% chance that it's going to, that it's going to, that there's, that a war is going to break out tomorrow and a 50% chance that, you know, uh, a president will resign in two weeks, if you take enough of those predictions, you know, 50% of them should happen and 50% of them shouldn't happen. If you say something is 60%, 60% should happen. You're supposed to be well calibrated with your prediction. And that's the one that the Good Judgment Project and a lot of the IARPA tournaments use to assess how good um, forecasting, how good a forecast is. And for some reason in these prediction markets, this idea of using a Brier score is considered not good enough. And I'm not entirely... Well, read enough to understand why, but I think part of it has to do with not all questions are made equally. And if you're in this sort of governance, for those of you who don't know, IARPA um, is intelligence funded research in essence. If you know what DARPA is, which is um, defense is, is the DOD funding research, IARPA is the intelligence community funding research. And so the intelligence community has funded these forecasting tournaments but when you run your own forecasting tournament, you can sort of set all the questions. And so presumably all questions are more or less made equal, right? In Tetlock's forecasting, he says they normally spend a relatively even band of time on each question, but we've gone to meticulous. Uh, our JCPOA forecast took us four hours, five hours, maybe. Whereas our forecast on Starlink, albeit, you know, made to be a little bit were entirely funny, took us less time to do. And because people that are asking community questions ask questions from such a wide range of topics with different levels of rigor into the writing of the question itself that um, you can't sort of score all things the same, I think is what the community says. And so it's how do you sort of score the difficulty of a question when centralized committee is not creating the questions. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I think, yeah, also when you're looking at, you know, an array of incentive structures as well, it's going to be hard to score all questions equally because um, even just the way that you approach the questions or the incentive that you have to forecast certain um, certain percentages and make certain predictions is going to be, you know, potentially vastly different across the platform. So I think, yeah, having a broader score across all of these different uh, forecasting platforms is definitely difficult.
0: And But then how, do you have any, like, How, when community is asking questions, do you sort of say, this was a hard question or not, right? One could be like, you don't sort of get points, you don't know how many points you're going to get necessarily until the question resolves and until like the score is settled. And so if maybe you do it based on how the Metaculous community aggregate has done, and then you use that as some sort of baseline of difficulty, maybe you do what percentage of people that forecasted the question got it wrong but then how do you deal with like people say like spamming wrong predictions in a way to make a question seem artificially difficult um i was gonna say
1: yeah my instinct was to say you could try and take it the same way that in school you know you grade tests on a curve and that sort of gives you a sense for how difficult the test was based on people's performance and then you sort of skew the result down uh proportionately but as you said, in a test, you have a set number of people in the class, you know, you don't have people that can repeatedly take the test a bunch and do really poorly so that it seems like the test was way harder than it actually is. Um, so I, mean, I think the- theoretically, there are some models to, uh, to try and combat that. But in practice, it's probably a lot more difficult. So I definitely don't envy where a lot of these platforms are right now um, because they're facing down a monumental path.
0: Here's a... Here's a thought I just had, so it's probably not going to be great, but let me know what you think. Um, so we have this idea of super forecasters. Uh, for those of you who don't know, super forecasters are people who, when forecasting, just consistently do better than the average forecaster does, consistently much better, like orders of magnitude better in terms of um their foresight capabilities um and that's the sort of premise. So maybe Metaculus, as time goes on. Um, they sort of identify a cluster of people who are consistently considered good forecasters. And maybe they even like run a tournament trying to select those people for a year. And those people are kind of considered um, like the basket of goods that is used to sort of measure question difficulty. I mean, the the hard part of that is it's a community platform. Anyone can submit questions. Um, you would probably need a lot of people because you're going to need a lot of forecasts on each one of them you can rely on a baseline of just one so maybe like that's the clear limitation that i've already identified but something like that maybe where you're using like your best forecasters in some way to get you know post facto like the the difficulty of, of a question
1: yeah no i think that's probably right using you know maybe partnering with the good judgment project um, you know, getting super forecasters to sort of set a benchmark for some of these questions or maybe set a benchmark for a certain type of question. Um, again, like you said, the limitation is probably just bandwidth and volume questions, um, but there's got to be a way maybe good judgment project has some um, sort of automated forecasting capabilities or they have some way to sort of keep up with the volume, but I think that is maybe the best fix that I can think of is um, is having super forecasters at a benchmark because otherwise, like you said, yeah, it's or even yeah, some of the top forecasters from Metaculus. But then that gets difficult because how are they the top forecasters based on points? And we just talked about how controversial the point system is. So it might have to be um these super forecasters vetted. Uh you cut out Andrew, can you Oh sorry, I think I just hit the mute button. Ah. Um yeah, but yeah what I was saying is that um you know, it might, the only option might be to have people who, you know, have been vetted by a non-point-based uh, incentive forecasting you know, environment, um, like super forecasters.
0: Or they maybe treat like points in like a certain way. I know like one of the issues they said is you could just sort of um, like spam at like towards like the end of the prediction or result. So maybe it's like the time between forecast to points or like how many points you have like per forecast. Like if, like say someone that has 100 points but got them over 100 forecasts, just sort of arbitraging and getting one point is not as good of a forecaster who got their 100 points by making 10 forecasts that was able to sort of, you know, get their points by clearly seeing their smaller set of problems better. I know that the Metaculous community in in their blog post had mentioned that they're trying to strike this balance between... Breath and depth of forecast, um, but at least according to these blogs, it seems as of right now it's tilted too much over towards breath um, rather than depth and maybe something where you judge how how long, how many forecasts it took to get points could help out. Or maybe that's just like way off and someone's going to be like, well, actually that opens up a whole wrong can of worms where you're just trying to hunt for a question early on where people are really wrong. Like if there's 20 forecasts and it just happened to all the dumb people happened to have forecasted it earlier, then you could just walk in and just scoop up points and then everyone would be, then the system would be like, Oh, you're actually a genius. So, um, I don't know. Do you have any more thoughts on this, uh, metaculous scoring controversy? I know it's something that I think we should keep thinking about because how you score forecasts is big to us as well.
1: It's going to be an ongoing conversation and we're not going to solve it on this podcast. You know, there's a lot, more qualified people, who I'm sure, are in, and in there's math formulas to involved to too. So, um, but do you know if you're incentivized to forecast earlier on metaculus? You are a function.
0: Yeah. Uh, so it um, the earlier you forecast, the more points you get, and if you update more often, you also end up getting more forecasts. Um, I
1: think that incentivizes good forecasting behavior.
0: Yeah, um, and just good. Speaking of updating forecasts. A little change of plan, but let's talk about this week in geopolitics. Yeah, starting off with because it has to do with updating forecasts, the JCPOA. So it's come out recently, not sort of major news, but that um, the pace of talks for dealing with the JCPOA is slowing down, and that there is sort of increasing concern that there's no rush, especially on the Iranian side. Um, to strike a deal right away and that the constraints of the election are really starting to kick up. Um, And as we had pointed out in our initial forecast this month, the last month and the month after are the most critical uh, for a JCPOA deal happening in 2021. And so I thought it would be useful for us, you know, to look back at our meticulous forecast and think, was it correct where we left it or should we update it a little bit? And Andrew, I was just wondering if you could just sort of talk a little bit more about the news while I get that set up.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, to some of the biggest news, there was an obstacle, uh, you know, earlier in the month where the IAEA, which is the International Atomic Energy Agency, um, was trying to basically have talks, go uh, and inspect Iran's, uh, like, uranium production and nuclear facilities. Um, Iran was not having it. That was a big roadblock. Um, you know, because obviously that would be a prerequisite to any further negotiations between Iran and the U.S. regarding potential um, agreement, potential deal. Now that roadblock is passed, but I think it speaks to our initial thesis that a lot has changed between when the deal was first struck and now there's a lot more talks that need to happen, a lot more auditing. Um, and so
0: that just takes time, just, right? Just,
1: exactly. And so going back to our time constraints, it's likely to happen a deal is likely to happen at some point it seems like both parties have an incentive to join but that's actually getting a deal done this year you know it, it just doesn't look very likely so i think our um directionally our outlook uh was correct from the outset i think you know since we made the prediction uh we've been less and less confident that this deal is going to get done this year and i think uh you know the news from this week the fact that now they're just starting to have talk with the iea um, they're going to go to Iran uh, and you know, look at their facilities and look at their production. I think um, it only strengthens our
0: thesis, and I think the other big piece of news that i I just found up again is that um Iran had rejected to have uh, european u s. talks, um, and that Iran was quite pissed that <laughs> pissed that um uh, the u s and the EU were going to um, not, not sanction. What's the censure them for um, some of their recent uh, activities in the region? Um, and so we had originally said. I, I pulled up the forecast here that it is a twenty percent chance that the U.S. rejoins the Iran deal before twenty twenty two. And if you are watching this in video format, what you can see here on Metaculus is when this question first opened up, it was low at forty percent, and then it dipped and sort of stayed at sixty percent. And then when we answered the question, it was at so 55% it Yeah, it is on the screen right now. And it's actually sort of ticked up. But if you notice here on this graph, this gray chart is showing um, the confidence interval of this median prediction. And so it's showing that while on average people, and this actually goes back to the scoring thing, right? this median prediction is staying really stable. But it's actually dipping down quite a bit. Uh, within, I believe this is the 25 to 75% confidence interval. I'm not entirely sure. But what you can see here is that, in general, people are being um, relatively negative to the median, even though the median prediction is staying still at 55. And so the question for us is, do we feel that 20% is still the correct amount, right? We've talked about these number of negative impacts to happening. And so do we still think there's a one in five chance that the U.S. rejoins the Iran deal before 2022? And if not, what does that realistically fall to? Does that fall to a 10 percent, which is then, you know, uh, a a one in 10 chance, which is pretty rare? Is it even lower than that? Right. In, In some degrees, maybe we're being too conservative. One in five is seems like a low chance, but one in five things happen nearly all the time in life, um, relatively without... It happened one out family. of five
1: <laughs>
0: times. Yes. Um, <laughs> like, for instance, what, what's the equivalent of one in five? I mean, if you have three children of the same uh, sex, that's lower than a one in five chance of happening. And you see families like that all the time. Is the Iran deal more or less likely than a family having three children of the same sex at this point? That's one way to to view it right now.
1: Yeah, no, it's, I think it's good to have those sort of heuristics. heuristics so just, yeah. Um, yeah, ways to think about things, put it in perspective. Um, yeah, I think our percentage definitely dropped in the news this week. I mean, especially also taking into account all the discussion about the stimulus bill and just the fact that there are so many other things on Biden's plate right now besides this around negotiation um,
0: mm.
1: you know i think it definitely drops how much it drops is a question
0: i didn't even think about the political constraints but that's definitely a thing right if the interesting thing about the stimulus passage is not only right that um senate and congressional republicans have been against it which would indicate that any sort of Congressional review of rejoining the JCPOA is not going to be a smooth passage, but that also that conservative Democrats, and particularly in the Senate, Joe Manchin was willing to sort of uh, obstruct um, the passage of the relief bill for 10 hours for relatively minor concessions. And, you know, as Politico reported, so, you know, it's a news report, take it with whatever confidence you, you want to give to that, that Democrats were concerned that Joe Manchin would actually side and support the Republican amendment um, on unemployment benefits for COVID, which indicates that really the how the Senate is really like kind of 50-50 and that people are really, they're going to be a lot of power players. So maybe the political constraints for Biden were greater than we had considered as well. And so I definitely, that that's a good point. And I, I think the news this week is less new revelations and more so confirming a lot of the previous things that we had thought were possible but not necessarily definitive in terms of negative factors on our probability Um, so i would feel at least comfortable dropping it by another five percent which is quite a lot in terms of overall probability the drop from 20 to to 15. Um,
1: i was going to have it somewhere in the 15 to 20 range i think as well um because i can also see political uh Sort of constraints going the other way and i don't think the stimulus bill was a huge w for the democrats um just because you know the eligibility of who you can get these bills is narrowed and um, i don't think biden's at least the the left side of his camp is too thrilled about that so i think that there is pressure from progressives to do something i think that aligns more with that with that wing of, of the democratic party with that sort of very left wing of the democratic party i think that can look like rejoining the deal um you know again, the time constraints, I think in this case outweigh the political constraints. And even if, you know, he has a preference to rejoin the deal based on what his party's saying, it still might not be likely. However, um I think that's that's why I wouldn't drop it too much, but I think somewhere in that fifteen to t- to to twenty percent, you know, maybe calling it even at seventeen, sixteen or seventeen um, is probably appropriate at this time,
0: yeah. I would say then we should drop it to. Let's say 15s Let, let's do it to 15 and then maybe revisit this with more time and sort of really um, write down the exact like path of our logic in a meticulous update. So we'll yeah. on the news of this week, to the JCPOA, we are now forecasting the U.S. rejoins the Iran deal before 2022 is at 15% rather than 20%.
1: And I'm sure it'll get even lower as well. Oh, um, I mean, more news comes out, but I think just
0: and also as time year. goes on, right? Naturally,
1: prices yeah, get lower and lower.
0: Yeah, because sort of the time for like a last-minute turnaround for oh, you know, secretly there've been back-channel talks the whole time. Um, the odds of that coming out just go down as, as as time goes on. Although it would be hilarious if you know December 30th, Biden's like, surprise, we've been doing. Back channel talks. This whole time he's we've rejoined, say, yeah. <laughs> and then and then our prior score would would be really bad much at that point. No, it wouldn't make sense. No, Biden to keep those talks. Biden though could be family. following global guessing and thought, how do we ruin their ability to forecast? No one, he's, no one thinks about that constraint. He's using Iran to sabotage global <laughs> the guessing new forecasting website. I see exactly. I think. I give. I give my confidence behind that hypothesis at least half a percent of, at least half percent i was gonna
1: <laughs> exaggerate <laughs> it wildly got it got it um but yeah no obviously that's gonna be a big story in geopolitics uh yeah
0: the, the, the biden global year. guessing controversy oh you mean jcpoi
1: <laughs> yeah over the course of this year and over the course of his term i think you know the iran question um they are sort of this omnipresent uh you know, I say quote unquote threat because you know, my sort of outlook on on Iran, on China, I think a lot of this is a product of asymmetry of information security dilemma, but it still is almost a big
0: And the uh, fact that every US player. opponent is always considered a madman. Yes. We we exactly have that. we have this phenomenal capacity that we somehow always get faced up against madmen. That is the one it's truth in the world. Bo- right? Yep. Always madmen. It's never like this is, a, this is a, this is, um, like a, a, capable leader that is posed as yeah. Well, they're only capable
1: when we put them into power, right? <laughs> When, when they're elected by their own people, then we got an issue.
0: <laughs> anyway, a, let's move so on yeah, to yeah, the let's topic be of
1: geopolitics. <laughs> um, a big story again, um, maybe even bigger than JCPOA right now that's going on in the world, uh, is what's going on in Myanmar, uh, which we talked about yesterday, which has been really interesting. Um, you know, Myanmar for a long time, you know, for decades, has been this quasi-democratic state uh, where the military has had a lot of power, but there's sort of there's been ebbs and flows of, of military control and democratically elected leaders. Um, and most recently in February, the military uh, carried out a coup, uh, arresting the leader of, of Myanmar and taking control of the country. We talked about them shutting down the internet. Um, You know, uh, you know, people are taking out a lot of money from ATMs and going to grocery stores or par for the course for those who have experienced this before. Um, And, you know, on top of the Rohingya crisis that, you know, happened or is happening, has been happening for the last few years, you know, there's a lot going on in Myanmar. And so, um, you know, not a formal forecast, but it'll be interesting to see how the U.S. responds and just what the future for, for Myanmar and that region of the world is
0: yeah i think you know we talked about this privately but um how likely was this event to happen in retrospect i think is one way of thinking on the sort of way out of it too right if this was something that no one in retrospect could have seen coming then i think the ability to forecast the outcome has a lot more sort of variance into it, at least as of right now, as a lot of things are still unfolding. Um, On the other hand, you know, in Myanmar, for those of you who are not aware of the constitutional framework or setup of of Myanmar, is that uh, during the reforms that started in 2011 through 2015, where Myanmar transitioned to this quasi-democracy, the military Rewrote the, well. They they wrote the constitution, which allowed for quite a few things. Number one, the military um, was never under civilian control, so the military was under the control of the the head general and the military. That's one thing. Uh, number two, the constitution was supposed to guarantee them at least twenty five seats in the parliament. And number three, most importantly, is that the military for any reason um, or for national security that could threaten the integrity of the union um, could declare martial law and take over for at least a year, which is the pretext that they used um, in this coup. And the reason why they did the coup is because they got destroyed in the elections. Um, I think there's say 430 seats uh, in the Myanmar parliament. I, th- I think it's right around that number. Um, the, the the Democratic Party won something like 397 of those seats, and the military won 30, which is an absolute shellacking um, electorally. And I think maybe a, a realist would probably say that if you are in power, because uh, how they also wrote the Constitution is that they were guaranteed um, certain ministries, I believe, that were particularly important, including foreign affairs. And so if you have this sort of grip on power um, and you just got absolutely wiped out of it and you have this sort of fail safe where you can just sort of you know, say, oops, we're in power, you know, it's probably more likely to have happened than I think um, people were anticipating. Like between the election results and when the coup happened that people probably should have been a little bit more on alert and maybe they weren't, we just weren't a- a- attuned to it. And so if this is something that was likely to happen, then the resolution of it and when that resolution would happen, is probably going to be further down the line, that this Myanmar crisis is not something that will get resolved um, within, say, like a month or two. And if we look at something like Thailand, which is different, of course, but those protests have been going on for at least a year. Um, And I don't know what the base rate is in terms of military coups and protests and how long those take to resolve. But... You know, Lukashenko is still in power after the protests and after all these months. And so it doesn't look like there's sort of quick resolutions on this. And so I think as unfortunate as it is to say is that um, I don't see an an easy way out of this. And if the military has been willing and is using deadly force against protesters, I would say it's more likely than not that, you know, the coup stands at least six months out, I would say. Just thinking off the top of my head, I don't know what, what you're thinking is, Andrew. Yeah,
1: I mean, I definitely agree that, um, you know, this was somewhat predictable in the sense that, you know, if the military felt threatened in terms of their influence in the country, then that they would definitely take this sort of action. Um, and just looking at election results, it's kind of cool because we forecasted a lot of election results in the past. You know, this led to sort of pretty directly um, this this military coup. I do think, you know, we talked about China, China's role in all of this, um, and the fact that China has invested, you know, what, what do we say, a hundred billion dollars in different, uh, you know, infrastructure projects in Myanmar, um, you know, as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And so I do think as we're seeing all of the ingredients for what could be, you know, just a really bad time for Myanmar. I mean, I'm thinking about the Arab Spring, right? I mean, how did it start? There's a lot of peaceful protests met with, you know, violence from the state, you know, that led to much larger protests, domino effect. I'm not saying it's going to be that large, but I think when you see these seeds of, you know, rampant instability and China has this massive investment, my feeling is that either they're going to do something in the near term to try and just mitigate this from getting out of control, um, or like you said, this is going to be a much longer issue. So I think it's like one of two few things. It's either trying to, I don't even know what they would do, honestly, because looking at, you know, how they treated the situation in Hong Kong, it seems like they have an appetite for, you know, protesters um, being brutalized and just sort of letting that happen. Um, and, but you know, they also, can... yes. And I'm and also like, you know, the Uyghur camp, like, China is not a purveyor of human rights around the world. Like they, they I mean, would not, would be, but... The U.S. is definitely not either. But I'm just saying that the, China would not step in. Um, from On a human, the human rights, rights basis, yeah. Um, but from an economic basis, I could see them, especially as, you know, we talked about also this article where they set a growth target of 6% for 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, we both read in Geopolitical Alpha, I know it seems like we talk about that every podcast, um, but that China during COVID was pretty stingy when it came to stimulus. It seems like they have these these um, these economic goals, uh, you know, whether it's to protect their middle class or whatever it is, just to grow as a power in the region, gain influence. Perhaps that's enough of an incentive for them to do something in Myanmar, at least to uh, stop it from getting out of control. But if that doesn't happen in the near term, yeah, I think it's going to be much a much longer term issue, especially as we said, it's been going on for decades in Myanmar.
0: I think the big thing for the Myanmar constraint for China, which I'd read about this morning, is that there's apparently a pretty key energy pipeline that goes right through Myanmar into China, um, because China is currently seeing soaring rises of energy consumption, uh, in part due to you know how much they produce, but also right they're continually lifting people out of poverty. And as you get out of poverty and you know start industrializing rural areas, energy consumption goes up, obviously. And they have so many people. Um, the question, though, is what is for China the most stable resolution of this? Because if you think about what would make Myanmar stable post coup, would almost be a complete eradication of the current constitutional system in Myanmar. Right? You can't have the military be under its own control, you can't guarantee a 25% seats. There's a lot of no, things market that... market
1: shut down when the military came into power. That's awful for China's investment. You know, you're not going to get any foreign direct investment in Myanmar.
0: Well, they the shut down world. the market so they can keep all the capital within the country, right? You don't want yeah. people selling off in, and out, putting right. their money into foreign yeah. markets. So the question, though, is in terms of, right, that that, that that's a short-term shock. What is is is, is the complete reconfiguration and all the steps needed, right? It's not like the Myanmar military is going to be like, okay, we'll leave power. You'd have to either give huge amounts of concessions uh, to them, either to be in exile or intervention directly, uh, or severe economic sanctions, which would be worse than shutting down the the Myanmar stock market. And so, all of those seem like quite large disruptions to stability of say, crafting a pipeline. Um, And as we'll talk about later, right, the U.S. has said we're we're the Biden administration and and Secretary Blinken has said, you know, democracy intervention. That's not a thing that we do anymore. It might have been good in philosophy or in heart, but in practice, it's sucked because of, you know, history. Um, So we probably shouldn't do that anymore. So the U.S. is, you know, they said they're going to do sanctions. They've done sanctions. The fed has prevented a billion dollars from the military taking it out of the country all these things but that's just sanctions we've done a lot of sanctions on a lot of people that have stayed in power for a long period of time and so it's wrong, i'm pretty sure as well <laughs> so maybe like the the compromise is actually China sort of helping to stabilize the new regime um, and helping them transition from pure military rule into some sort of more CCP-esque sort of form of, of, of control, which someone might say, given me more politics, that's really dumb to say. Fair enough. Um, but I don't know if, in terms of China's interests, that getting rid of the coup is actually most beneficial to their goals. Um, and so that might change sort of how the outcome comes. Um, I know, like, aspirationally, we, we 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 would love to say, like, yes, people intervene and help the people of Myanmar and restore democracy, but um, that might not be in the interest of at least the most powerful stakeholders in this case.
1: Yeah, no, this could be an interesting opportunity, like we said, you know, talking again privately yesterday for China and the U.S. to collaborate, um, you know, different perspectives or different incentives for collaboration, but, you know... Um, I think they both want to see a stable Myanmar, uh, you know, as I said, for different reasons. And I mean, I personally would like to see that happen. I think the key towards a lot of exit to solving a lot of existential issues around the world the climate change, um, you know, refugee issues is going to be collaboration between major, major powers. Um, maybe this will help the U.S. and China to get comfortable, you know, engaging diplomatically more often. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Also, something we'll be keeping an eye
0: out for. Yeah. Um, And actually just the last thing on that, which I just found interesting is that um, the reason for all the democracy transitions in Myanmar in 2011 was to lessen the reliance on China and to attract foreign aid. And yet this sort of action, it speaks to how much they really care about aid relative to power and that they would rather sort of more so be reliant on China and keep in power than lose their degree of power or, um, and sort of achieve their more so regional independence or relying their dependence on China, which I just thought was an interesting thing. Cause right. Uh, dependence on China, um, was a factor for them to open up and become a democracy, but then Ultimately, that wasn't enough because they weren't fully committed to that idea, right? Ultimately, it was power that mattered the most. And so that aid money was to stay into power seemingly, right, to fund economic growth, to to say, oh, it's okay that we have only a quasi-democracy. Um, but there are also some other things, the news we wanted just to briefly touch on before we get to our final topic. Um, yeah. Which, speaking of U.S., China, working together in Myanmar... Um, is u.s china competition moving forward um i know you had some thoughts about that um maybe you can start this one off
1: i mean it sort of ties into what we just talked about with myanmar and the potential for growth but i think uh you know the next i'll say two decades um are going to be really sort of fascinating a lot in terms of competition between the u.s and china not just through the lens of the thucydides trap right that's very commonly toted Graham Allison but I think um and you know it's a it's a it's a valuable theory uh okay a way of looking at okay 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 Okay.
0: let's let's just move on it's going to get into a lot there so
1: um I think that
0: just the case of China
1: in terms of economic development is going to be interesting sort of in a vacuum separate from the U.S. um just because China is so massive because China has had such a the troubled past with economic development in the past you talk about the great Leap forward and you know a lot of turbulence that came from the cultural revolution like i just think it's going to be really interesting to see how their own story of growth um sort of lines up with the u.s story of growth uh you know which is in terms of approach to you know the last 12 months and covid has been almost polar opposite like we talked about um granted it's different you know constituencies different um population sizes different geographies i just think it'll be interesting to sort of compare the two approaches of you know super um heavy on stimulus you know rack up debt m1 going out the you know M1 like monetary supply going up 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 um versus china which has been a bit more conservative and just how that pans out for each country's future i think growth yeah
0: prospects. i think the big thing in growth prospects moving forward will be how much um, can China claim in fintech and how much can China ensure that their currency at least gains a substantial hold as a reserve currency the um, interesting thing about stimulus um, is yes in some way China wants to be financially prudent but in other ways they just don't have the same capabilities that the US definitely has to the highest degree but also the European Union, Japan and the UK have given that um, their currencies um are used as sort of backup reserve currencies. The US dollar right now um, is about 55, 60% of US reserve currencies, which is an outsized share of um, how big the US GDP is as a whole. The US GDP is I think 23% of global GDP, China 21%. Um, And having that ratio um, lets the US in in, in theory print out more money for stimulus. And there's a, a large, monetary theory discussion about that, which we won't get into in this episode, but it is a tool that the US has to the highest degree. But the EU, Japan, and the UK have also had this capability, hence you've seen large stimuluses there, at least relative to the rest of the world, because um, the Euro, for instance, is I believe 20-ish percent. Um, 18% of reserve currencies, which is roughly equal to their GDP. The same is true for the pound um, and for the yen as well. And so these countries have the capability to print stimulus and therefore drive economic growth, or in this case, sort of blunt, severe economic decline. And I think for China, they've been doing all of this massive GDP growth without having um, that monetary, um, you know, that monetary capability to also further accelerate growth. Um, and clearly China is aware of that. That's why they push so much into fintech and to trying to be a leader in that space. And it'll be interesting to see if that transition happens because if that does happen, um, I think that would be monumental in terms of where we see this U S China competition gets to. Um, and I think that's sort of, uh, the U.S. is sort of like last trump card that we still have as of right now is that the U.S. dollar is still the reserve currency and that we can do these sort of relatively absurd monetary tricks because of it. Um, and I think that'll be really interesting to see how that fintech competition plays out over time.
1: i interested to think about sort of the energy futures of both countries. I know China aiming to be, I think, carbon neutral by like 2060 or something. Um, I, you know, Between the uh, Portugal article that we released and the Niger article that we released, you know, we've seen that China is like the largest producer of some of the most important rare metals that are going to be relevant to the clean energy boom, like lithium, which is an integral, um, you know, part of batteries and uranium, which is huge for nuclear reactors, nuclear energy, clean energy. Um, you know, is really, yeah, it's like recyclable and it's, you know, very low on carbon emissions. Um, you know that could be a huge boon to their economic prospect moving forward. Um, you know if the spot prices for those rare metals go up, uh, and you know I mean I think the U.S. recently just opened up or is looking at doing some exploration in California to try and um, become self-sufficient, or in California rather, to be self-sufficient in that area uh, because they sort of see that the future is clean energy, and these are some of the building blocks of that of that movement. Um, so if China is holding the cards there. That could be a really
0: big win for them. So then the U.S. should purchase Australia? Just buy the whole country? I mean, <laughs> the they have... Don't, I think they have bigger reserves than China, right? They have the biggest reserves. Now, am I being Australia's,
1: they have a lot of reserves. They're really, Fat reserves. They have a lot. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, maybe that means you get closer to, to Australia. Um, but I think that that clean energy boom is going to be really interesting. China, obviously... It's very pressing that they do something there because of just the amount of people that they have, the amount of production going on in the country. Um, you have to have some way to do it in a in a clean, sustainable way. Um, so I think they have not only right for the environment but for people's that.
0: health as well, right
1: yeah, yeah, China already you know sunsets on TV because the smog is so high, like you need to do something um to sort of mitigate the direction the country's heading in, um, but also obviously the deal, like Clean energy, you know, becoming less carbon reliant is also tricky from a competition standpoint because it's one of those things where like no country wants to be the first mover because that's going to affect production in the short term and then everybody else is going to be doing well while you're moving on to this you know uh, you know green approach to, to conducting business and operating and the costs um, so as also, well
0: right being the first it's mover. also very
1: expensive yeah. so you know it takes collaboration it takes a uh, commitment from often a group uh of, of big players so maybe another opportunity for collaboration um either between the us and china or maybe china and india can see eye to eye because they both have large populations and both have to go green um but yeah that'll be very interesting to watch
0: all right and then i think the last topic we want to talk about today and this is one that i think we're going to review just because once uh we have found this website gone down a complete rabbit hole is this website called root claim now andrew you sh- introduced me to this website. Would you like to give at least a little story about how you found this website and why you shared it with me?
1: Yeah, I mean, so to be perfectly honest, uh, my roommate uh, sent me this website, rootclaim.com, because he knows that, you know, we run global guessing and are interested in forecasting. Um, and rootclaim is sort of a perfect fit. Uh, it's similar to Metaculus in that they value crowdsourcing, um, you know, to come to a consensus view on, on certain questions. Um, but it also incorporates uh, you know Bayesian statistics, something that we've used and talked about in our election forecasts. Um, and it sort of ends up being this really interesting approach to forecasting questions. So what'll happen is that you'll have a question, um, sort of an overarching question, and then underneath that question you'll have uh, you know various pieces of evidence related to that question. Um, and on both the larger question and all these pieces of evidence to the question, you'll have sort of these these discrete uh, forecasts and predictions. Um, and the topics range, you know, way beyond geopolitics. They talk about things in pop culture. Um, you know, they talk about science and a lot of, you know, punter on COVID, but it's just a really interesting, uh, sort of approach. To trying to figure out the answer to a question, you know, by breaking it down into components into different pieces, um, and then aggregating all of those pieces together. Um,
0: you so know, I'm, to I'm sharing my screen it. right now. And we're gonna start off on the Malaysian flight. I had just done a quick sort of demo if you were watching the video. Um, it provides sort of like the background of it. Um, how the process works is it basically for, it asks the community for a series of hypotheses of what could happen. Um, this has to do with the Malaysian Airlines flight. So they basically ask the community, well, what are different things that you thought could have happened? The first one is that the pilot deliberately qu- Crashed the flight while committing suicide, the co pilot crashed the flight, um, that there was an emergency event that disrupted the, the flight, and that the flight was hijacked, um, or that it was crashed due to some sort of technical issue shortly after takeoff in the South China Sea. And then, as Andrew was saying, it sort of breaks down and it first gives initial probabilities for everything. And this is in terms of Bayesian statistics, known as sort of like the base rate. Just given the case as it is, where does it sort of line up? And you have that. Then it sort of breaks down the evidence. Yep. And this is very complicated. There are all these effects, and it has to do with confidence intervals and how reliable data is. But it basically breaks down the evidence, and it says how important they were to each of the different hypotheses and then gives it a sort of like updated likelihood for, in terms of this one piece of evidence, what do you think is the most likely to come? And sort of does this for all the different pieces of evidence, multiplying or dividing by different effects. Um, People in the community can add new pieces of evidence, question evidence. What we really like is that it breaks down evidence into super easy um, parts to see, right? Altitude is a piece of evidence, and there's a whole section on altitude and the different relevant factors and the different analyses, and there's sub-analyses for all of this. And this is great, we think, in terms of how it lays out evidence, how it really tries to be very specific about how does this one piece of evidence affect a hypothesis. Because I think something that we come across, Andrew, a lot with our forecasts is that we'll sort of find all the evidence and find these factors. But we don't necessarily have a clear cut way of finalizing how these impact a the final probability and whether or not this method is is the right way to weight things. Um, it's good that they have this sort of clear weighting system that, like, you know, why you got to this number because this had a certain confidence, this evidence had a certain reliability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It sort of it's not puts too the math similar from
1: our. From our jcpoa forecast in the sense that we had all these factors we weighted all the factors and so you can actually go into you know our model and say okay well what if we said that this is less important or this was more you know how does that affect the overall outcome um so no i definitely agree i think it's the approach is is correct in that you know you're breaking things down into components um and trying to build back up to some to some viewpoint I do think, you know, it's not an infallible platform, right? I think there can be biases in terms of what evidence you're actually looking at. And, you know, is there evidence that that wasn't put on that could have been relevant to the story? Um, But I think, yeah, it's not a website that I was familiar with before this week. It's really interesting to sort of go through and look at some of the different issues that they forecasted on, um, to sort of look at their perspective on forecasting in general. And, um, you know, it might be something that we end up doing some forecasts on at some point um you know if they're putting out new content
0: yeah um i think one thing that we definitely should at least work on taking is this sort of numericalization of the effects you're right in the jcpoa we did but we sort of said like high low medium and then we did give them factors but i think the way in which they've sort of displayed information first of all is i think really good Um, and just the way in which they've displayed how numerical things work is really great now you had mentioned more forecasts, which is interesting because this website has kind of seemed dead. So we had done a little bit of research on LinkedIn um, and the co-founder said that this project started in 2015 and ended in 2017. But there have been a lot of new forecasts on this website recently. And let's just say that I don't know if it's right or not, but claim definitely paints a different reality than I think many people have. So I'm gonna go share my screen again. And I showed, we, we showed off the Malaysian Airlines flight because, um, well, that's a pretty non-controversial result that they say 93% chance pilot committed suicide. But let's go through yeah. the rest of the website and see what else we find. What is the source of COVID-19? 76% chance it was developed during a gain of function research and released by accident from the Wuhan Virology Lab okay uh the 2013 syrian chemical attack in ghouta was actually a false attack done carried out by the opposition forces uh the same is also true for the 2017 chemical attack in syria 83 percent chance that it was carried out by the opposition um And if you go into this and we've started to do it, but we don't want to necessarily slander these forecasts before we've done really good due diligence onto them. But there seems to be sort of conflicting, um, you know, they all talk about like, we don't try to cherry pick things and stuff, but it seems like they cherry pick the weighting of numbers to sort of reach the results um, that they want to get. Um, I just think it's interesting that right this one website has um these sort of more completely out there forecasts um from how sort of most people perceive events um which is not to say that 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 it's wrong, but um based on some like initial research that I have done into say the Syrian chemical attacks um, or whether or not COVID was released from the Wuhan Virology Lab, um, it's not necessarily that they are wrong, but that they seem overly confident in their depiction of events. Um, for instance, behind the COVID-19 prediction, they point out in terms of the shape of the uh, S protein um, model, which is how it binds to the body or whatever, Um, And they have pointed that out as looking as if something um, was derived from the lab, but other studies have come out recently that actually that sort of shape and that sort of mutation has appeared in um, a number of other just wild viruses in nature um, and that it's actually not as much of a smoking gun, for instance, in terms of the characteristics of COVID-19, which is one of the factors they give for it being released from a lab. And so
1: what I mentioned about the about the bias of of evidence, right, if you're not constantly collecting evidence and voting on it, then at some point the prediction is going to become irrelevant because it's mm-hmm. not up to date with you know, what's out there.
0: So because it's become sort of like less popular, it's been sort of there's less alternative voices necessarily being said. And so you're only getting a sample of information being put in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also who knows what else came out during that time period that the question was being actively voted on that, you know, wasn't included in, in the evidence um, underneath that initial hypothesis. Like, I think, again, the approach is right, but execution wise and to no fault of their own necessarily. But I think it's just difficult to do well.
0: It's interesting, though, they say, like, one of their things is that we don't cherry pick evidence is one of their steps in their process as well.
1: I'm, I'm sure they do a lot of work. Or did. Sort of, uh, did a lot of work to sort of mitigate against that cherry picking or that evidence bias um but yeah i just think it's difficult um but definitely again that's what i'd like to keep up with you know maybe if we can get in touch with the person who created it we can have them on mm. at some point that'd, that'd be, really be interesting, interesting. um there's perspective and his vision for the platform but uh yeah definitely fascinating
0: it's also the other thing that's interesting is that they have this track record page um and It says, um, so far, no hypothesis in a root claim analysis that received a likelihood of 50% or more was later shown to be wrong. Um, What's interesting in this track record is some of the things featured in the track record um, are still sort of unknown. Um, They just say, like, as of right now, the balance of evidence indicates that they are correct. which I thought was interesting, but I think the other one is, and they actually point this out, is that as we are talking about earlier with scoring, um, you wouldn't actually want to have all your forecasts that had over 50% chance be correct. Um, you would actually want some of them to be correct unless they were, you know, all like 99.9% chances, which they're not. And they point this out that they have this overperformance and that it was, quote, intentional. Um, I don't really know how much... Like sort of buy that as an excuse like, oh, we intentionally made our confident, um, made our model um, not well calibrated, and we intentionally made it um, miscalibrated. That seems like a sort of interesting approach to creating a forecasting model. Um, so I don't necessarily buy that. Um, and it's also, if you remember at Philip Tetlock's super forecasting, Um, And as we talked about last week, in terms of becoming a super forecaster, you have to make at least 100 predictions before really you can say anything statistically significant about how good of a forecaster you are. And on their track record page, they have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven forecasts, which is a pretty small sample size to say much. Now the difficult part is that Root claim says that they want to handle controversial events and there just might not be enough controversial events but that also then i think would limit how necessarily reliable you can treat the model i don't know if um what do you think
1: yeah i mean i think like a lot of things with such small sample sizes it needs more rigorous testing so like if you know whoever's running the site now were to um just release a bunch more questions you know just have it be a more iterative sort of experiment you could say something more conclusive but i agree yeah with such few few questions it's hard to say anything um sort of determinant about the model or about the platform aside from the fact that it's an interesting approach another approach um you know in a time where it seems like a lot of people are trying to figure out how to best forecast the unquantifiable so to speak
0: now Andrew I know you have a soccer game to get to um don't want to delay you from that um so I That's think right. we will if end any
1: it soccer fans who are watching <laughs> feel free to comment your team your favorite team you watch love soccer
0: and i don't love soccer. Can be so related. i uh i won't read any of the comments but andrew will um that's right this is the uh third episode of the global guessing weekly podcast um if you guys have any questions topics that you want andrew and i to talk about please let yep. us know you can put it in the comments section reach out to us on twitter facebook linkedin um that would be great um If you there any guests that you think would be good to have on
1: suggestions, please also. Or if you want to be a
0: guest, yeah, let's talk. Let's talk. Talk. Um, and if there's anything that we talked about that you think that we should follow up on, I mean, we are gonna think and talk more about the Metaculus scoring in the future, just because it's something central to forecasting that we think that we should know more about, as well as looking more into root claim because we only wanted to talk a lot about the surface level things that we feel confident about as we alluded to there's a lot more underneath the surface to get to on root claim but that will have to wait until we feel really confident to talk about it because you know we 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 have our own website we know how much time and effort i mean just looking at this a lot of time and effort went into this you don't want to really say you want to say the nice things until you can necessarily say more about the rest uh So we'll just leave it at that. Um, Anything else, Andrew? No, just looking forward to next week and
1: uh, hearing people's feedback. So this has been great.
0: All right. And that is the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast, Episode 3. Thanks, everyone.